Welcome to Cool Story with Bree and Bridie. Except today, we have something very special for you. No Bree, just Bridie, doing a very special author interview with Caroline O'Donoghue, the author of The Rachel Incident and host of the smash hit podcast Sentimental Garbage. She's been in Australia for the last week and we were incredibly fortunate to get her into the studios to have a chat with us while she's on her whirlwind tour. Welcome to the show, Caroline. You've walked into Australia, essentially a mini sensation, (laughs) which has even shocked me as an Australian who knows your work and enjoys your work. Even I've been blown away by the response that you've received here. Yeah, yeah. Like one, were you ready for it at all? I assume not. And how does it feel? Great question because I'm still processing it as we speak because, you know, I've been here for... A week and a day now at this point, and I'm still not used to it. Like at first when I got here, uh, so I arrived in Brisbane and I had this sort of sensation for the first like day and a half that I was walking around trying to beat the jet lag before my first event, that I was kind of in a reverse Truman show. Where, where, you know how like the plot of the Truman Show is like, man thinks he's ordinary, turns out he's the most famous man in the world and everyone's watching him. I had the reverse where it was like, there was all these chicks in my phone being like, so excited you're here. So excited you're in Brisbane. We love you. Go here. Do this. Like, we're so invested in you having a good time. And then like, it's like hundreds of messages. And then looking around Brisbane and being like, does anyone recognize me? (laughs) (laughs) Am I, can you? And then like when the waitress is nice to me being like, are you nice to me because you're nice? Are you nice to me because you're a huge fan? (laughs) <laughs> and so and then like you having the first event and having like like settling out a venue that I, I, I would hesitate if I would be able to settle it out in London or in Ireland and just these people who are so excited and have so many stories and I think it is it's so much down to the length and the amount of the Australian lockdowns has deliberately contributed to it and, and also the fact that I, I had a couple of big podcasts here cover it that has just really funneled Australian birds my way and I couldn't be more delighted because like you know even though that's like a very logical explanation there is some every single chick I've met while I've been out here I've just been obsessed with you included (laughs) like there seems to be some kind of spiritual thing going on where I just feel like everyone is amazing and there's an instant click with almost everyone I meet oh my god you're twin flames with Australians like the Taylor Swift song your twin flame is not your husband it's Australian chick it's the nation of Australia (laughs) did did you have because those are good solid logical theories on why you're so big here but did you have any other theories about why there is such a connection or a twin flame happening I think a lot about it in the context of being an Irish person. I think there is a twin flaming going on with Ireland and Australia. I mean, like genetically, obviously, we have a lot in common and there are a fuckload of Irish people here and you're an Irish person as well. I think there are more Um, Irish people here than there are in Ireland. I know, I know. (laughs) But like you grew up in Derry, like you you understand why we would come here and why this would be the promised land. I went to school there a bit, back and forth. But yeah, Yeah. mostly in Australia, but I did live over there a couple of times. You're so hesitant to claim you're Irish. Because it's so cringe to be an Australian who claims being Irish. It is cringe. I understand that and I, I celebrate your reticence but also I've been out with, I was out with you last night and like you are the most Irish person <laughs> what a compliment yeah like an, an accent doesn't mean shit you are an Irish person and that's how I choose to recognise you 
<laughs> oh, thank you. But I think there is like a twin thing going on with Irish women and Australian women where like a load of people have been asking me, you know, after uh, the Rachel incident and, and how it's been lovely and it's been a very successful press trip for that. But um, why the universe seems so obsessed with Ireland at the moment and why everywhere you look, there's another Irish author who's coming up and there's like your Sharon Horgan's and your Ashling B's and like all these amazing people who seem to be really dominating the cultural conversation. And when they ask me about that, I kind of always think, well, you know, I think something happened when repeal the eighth, the abortion referendum in Ireland in 2018. Um, where Irish women always felt like they were being kept in the dark in terms of how our nationality was identified. I feel like, for example, when I was growing up, like in the, you know, noughties, the idea of Irishness was dominated by people like Colin Farrell and like Damien Rice. And like, I love those guys, but it felt like a very male world. Did you feel taken seriously as well in the early noughties as an Irish woman? No, I didn't feel like anybody was interested. If people were interested in Irishness, they were interested in Irish masculinity, Mm. I feel. And like, obviously, there were people like Sinead O'Connor, who was like reviled in Ireland to the point where what happened, what happened, you know? And also the cores who like were come so non-political that they sort of they were beautiful and they just disappeared behind a veil of shiny hair and so but there was no Irish women who just were planting both feet and being like here's who I am let me scream about you about my life kind of thing <laughs> and then the the referendum happened and we got all the, the our, Irish women came together to make that happen and, and Irish men too I don't want to disavow their con- contribution but mainly Irish women campaigned and they got together and I felt like when they realized that they could had the power to change their own country, this cosmic psychic shift happened that just allowed for all this power to become unleashed onto the world. And like Irish femaleness is like this fucking dragon circling the planet now. And I feel like the same thing's happening with Australian women. And I think it might have to do with the apology possibly or like the the sort of the, the politics of the um of the nation changing. But it seems like there is this dragon that's about to release from Australia and circle the world as well. Do you think? I think that there are parallels between the way that Irish people are thought were thought of when I was growing up. People very interested in Irish masculinity, but also thought as like this fun, drunk nation. Yeah. yeah. And that's kind of how Australia is thought of now and yeah. not taken that – well, I feel not taken that seriously on the world stage. And I think that there is huge potential for that to change and yeah. the dragon could be unleashed – but I don't think we have the politics just right yet. Yeah. But I hope that we get there in the next decade. Yeah. Yeah. Do you know I had what date is it today? October, October 16th. Sixteenth, yeah. And so I was in um I was in Melbourne. My big show was on the night of the referendum, which was tricky, you know. Yeah, that w- that would have been a hard mood. A hard that mood. That was a hard night. Yeah. And I you know, I, I my um co host that night for the show, Miff Warhurst, I said to her I was like I think we really do need to acknowledge the elephant in the room before we just like burst into like welcome to live sentimental garbage who wants a hot take on dirty dancing <laughs> do you know what I mean like and um, and all I said then is you know and again to draw yet another parallel between Ireland and Australia I was like when you know in, in 2002 there was a referendum uh, on abortion rights and you know that was for in the small number of cases where a woman's life would be in danger if you were to carry on with the pregnancy and allowing for terminations in those cases. And the referendum failed. And then in 2018, we had the referendum again and it was abortions legal in any any situation. 
It's really a short amount of time. It's a really short amount of time. 2018. Yeah, it's the length of an adulthood kind of thing of yeah. like becoming a teenager. And 2002, becoming... that was a day of shame for Ireland, for sure. Just like I feel like Australia yeah, has just exactly. had this referendum. But it's like, it is a sort of a sign that you can you can lose a battle, but it doesn't mean you lose the war. And sometimes the war, like the the, the result that we got in 2018 was so much better than the one we could have gotten in 2002, you know? And that referendum and the ramifications of it are all through the Rachel incident, even yeah. though it's this fun, sexy yeah. book about being in your early 20s, but you can still feel how it impacted, you know, people's lives in ways that they might not not necessarily have thought of. And it, and it is, you know, a theme to a degree. Taffy Brodessa Ackner, she says about writing novels, yeah. you know, people, especially when women write novels, but anyone writing a novel, everyone thinks it's just true. Yeah. Like, you know, it's written mm-hmm. as a memoir. But you've been very open about parts yeah. of this being true. And Taffy says that, you know, when it comes to a novel, everything's true and none of it happened. Yeah, yeah. Which I think is 100%. perfect descriptor of yeah. your book. But it must, some parts must feel awkward, in particular when I finished it. Yeah. I thought, is it awkward for you to think of your parents reading these sex scenes <laughs> since the character could be such a stand-in for you. <laughs> oh, my God. That's so funny. Oh, my God. No, you know what? I never really – you can't think about your parents when you're writing. No, you can't. Otherwise, you would never write you a never thing. Write. You would breathe. But the thing is, you know, the, the all of it is true, none of it happened. I think also um, Greta Gerwig said that about Lady Bird, that all of it is true, none of it happened. And, uh, and that is certainly true of the Rachel incident where like the only thing is that is true, true is the fact that me and my best friend Ryan, who was in the closet at the time, we lived in this tiny little house together in in Cork City during the economic recession. And that to me, the uh, part's the truth. And the, the entire plot is fake and all those other characters are made up. And it, yes, Rachel could very easily be seen as a stand-in for me because we have all these autobiographical details in common. But I don't see her as being spiritually like me very much at all, actually. I see myself as sli- actually closer to James in that I was the person when I was that age. I was the, I was, that was like bursting with like I need to get out kind of thing and I need to write job applications to sort of like internships in other countries and like I need to focus on a plan whereas like Rachel she's somebody who like if the recession wasn't on she probably wouldn't even think of moving of leaving Ireland you know what I mean and that's such a crux of that story is like these two friends who are planning to leave you know so yeah I think yeah it's it's she isn't she isn't you know that's interesting that the ambition is yours because I've heard yeah. you talk previously on a podcast about how you never felt like you were the smartest. These are your yeah. words, not mine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You never felt like you yeah. were the smartest or most talented. Mm. But you obviously had this ambition. And so what do you put your success down to? Because you obviously have an extraordinary work ethic. Where do you think this all comes from and why do you think you have succeeded? I think what happened... So like it was like feeling very much like an underachiever all the way through childhood and through school. And, you know, those, I don't know if you were like this at all, but like, you know, being really confused as to what you knew, you know, you have something, but it doesn't seem to translate into anything, which I think is such a youthful experience of like, I, I'm reading a lot. I'm writing a lot, but like I'm failing all my classes and I'm sort of just not 
I'm not physically or mentally coordinated towards anything that's happening around me, you know, and uh, there's no there seems to be no symbiosis between myself and my situations, you know, which I think is just being young and awkward. Right. Um, and then when I went to university, I it was like something clicked for me mentally where I realized the best way for me to learn was for a teacher to say, you know, or a lecturer to say, go read this book and think about it for two months and come back and have a long essay. And then I started achieving uh, at university in a way I had never before and getting quite good marks and getting noticed by professors and being like, look, I think we think you should do MAs and stuff. And like, you know, this is you have a sort of a, a life in academia, possibly. Wow. Uh, right? Which is This is also like the origin story of sentimental garbage. Yeah, though. it's 100 yeah. percent. It's the origin story. Like, I think it's so it's become so common now for people to talk about their university degrees, like their arts degree or their English degree or whatever they did as being this sort of useless thing or this excuse to party. But I didn't feel that way at all to me. I feel like everything that went into sentimental garbage it was started back in UCC. And that's why I'm so, I don't know, in, in the Rachel incident, I'm so like, I do take the piss out of it a bit at the college, but I do really feel like I was given this grade A education for not very much money and I didn't have any student debt by the end of it. And uh feel very defensive of that. But anyway, I sort of like rediscovered my like love of writing there. But I felt like I had wasted all this time or something. Even though I was only 19, I felt like I had somehow wasted time not pursuing these things. And then I just went turbo on it. And then when I decided to move to London, I it was for like an unpaid internship at a film website that was uh, run by these two people who then went on to become some of my best friends and are still my best friends, you know. And uh, I met, I had a whole kind of artistic community that I met through that internship because it would be like a set of four new interns that would change over every eight weeks, <laughs> which is so like predatory, but like meant that we had this artistic community. But how is anyone getting anything done? With, yeah. Like by the time they're just getting the swing of it, they're out I the know, door they're again. they're out the door. Yeah, because the, so it's, but the, that, that's the thing. They only hired people who could already write. And so everybody, we, were, we had this community of people who like the only reason they moved to London was to write. And everyone had that same level of ambition. And so we were all just bigging each other up and pushing each other on. And it just, I think it's really down to having having a group of mates who all want to do the same things as you do. And those people all went, mostly all went on to do, to be published authors or in theatre or whatever themselves, you know. It was kind of our Bennington College, you know. You've said previously as well that when you see another like Irish writer getting something like an award or a TV show or whatever, or a millennial writer, instead of feeling envy, you think to yourself, this is good for the parish. Yeah. Great day for the parish. Great day for the parish. Great day for everyone. But I'm sure you and your friends, these creative friends who have become yeah. ultra successful have been on the other side of that and the object of envy. envy. Yeah. How have you experienced that and how have you dealt with that? That's so interesting. It's funny because it, it's always helpful to have friends who are a little further down the line than you are. Like, for example, Dolly. Dolly's success is um, Dolly Alderton. If don't know if you've heard of her. I mean, if you've heard of me and not her, <laughs> that would be psycho. I was actually thinking how funny would it be if it turned out that in Australia like you're Do more massive than yeah. Dolly. <laughs> Dolly I, just... It's hard for me to gauge at the moment but yeah. it would be very funny if you're if you're Barbie out here <laughs> and she's skipper <laughs> not that you're that over there that's a reference to no. joke you've made before but um no but she yeah, she's like got the, I mean she's had a, she has a TV show she has like a syndicated national column you know she's a big big deal she's got a bunch of best sellers under her 
belt that are like monster bestsellers, not just like one week or two weeks bestsellers. So I've seen how people react to her and how, yeah, and, and how difficult that's been for her sometimes. And that like, it's almost like in the in the, in the the universe of like women in London writing and making stuff, she's at this top of the pyramid and everyone else sort of like comes down from it. And that's how she gets treated sometimes. Partially like royalty, partially like a big sister, but partially like somebody who's like a dragon sitting on a pile of gold and won't share when that's not the, that's not the. And I'm sure people can happening. project a lot of things onto her as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah. And she's so good at dealing with it. And But it also meant that like, when it started happening with me on a, very, on a much smaller scale, because I'm not going to pretend like I haven't had situations like that because I have. I understood it within the framework because I had seen Dolly go through it. Like, for example, there are people who there's the envy thing, which is like people sort of like insisting upon this narrative that's, that, that you've changed when it Ooh. isn't true. And, you know, it's like, no, what's changed is your perception of me. Like... My my best friends are still my best friends kind of thing. My family's like, you know, nothing has changed or whatever. People think that you have changed. Yeah. You haven't. You still have the same friends and all that. But also I think an element of some of that envy or what can, um, that envy can get tied up in is the point in our lives that we're at. And I think 30s is such an interesting time for friendship where it's almost like the second big era shakeup that we all had in our early 20s where... Um, you know, everyone like moved away from home and went to their new degrees and um, mm. got new friendship groups. Then you have that group for a few years who all have the same lives, essentially. And then in our 30s, now we have people getting married, mm. people having children, people breaking up out of long-term relationships, people being long-term single, yeah. people yeah. getting sick parents, and a lot of close friends getting very different lives yeah. for a while how do you like how I, do you I, approach that in your friendships and I've like been thinking and navigate the exact it? same thing as well like so yeah it's that you know the thing of you saying you know i haven't changed everything's all if you know my friends are still the same or whatever but like i think our entire generation we are coming of age uh, in in not coming of age but like we're coming of sense and we're coming of adulthood in a much deeper way like people having children are not people being much more serious about their jobs than perhaps they were 10 years ago and so their their time and their schedule has become whittled down you know it's like where you used to go out maybe three nights a week or whatever now you're going maybe going out one night a week or you, or, exactly. Yeah. You just have less time you have less, for whatever you, you, reason. You just simply have less time. And so your time is being whittled down. And therefore, the people you spend, time you spend with people has become more selective. And so you sort of have to, it's not like you're you're making cuts or anything, but you you do have to sort of make choices about where you're spending time. And I think that no matter who you are, that can be an uncomfortable thing, right? Like, some people and that's the thing like, I think generally like we all, we all know like 200 people right and I think really if we think about it, outside of our family we can only really deeply care of about 10 acts you know and so what do we do with our wider groups of acquaintances and friends and you know what I mean do you, do you have this problem ever oh, like you've oh, got two small boys so yeah well especially in my mid-30s and I've got two little kids and you know some of my closest friends 
most of them don't have children. Yeah. And they've been amazing to me. So I think I've kind of had a different experience to other yeah. people, but it's still very noticeable to us that our lives are so different. So you have to really want to make the time for each other. Yeah. Otherwise, it's easy for it to fall away or it's easy for it to fall away for one person and not the other. And then mm. that's when feelings get yeah. hurt yeah. as well. And so that's why I've been thinking a lot about changing, evolving friendships, some getting deeper, some that you thought that you'd be close friends forever yeah. fall away. And do you have this, do you, has this occurred to you? Because I've been thinking about it a lot, how the close friends my parents had when I was a kid and how those changed or fell away yeah. and they were kind of at the same age that I am totally. now a bit older and I'm and thinking, wow, this is just the cycles of friendship and I think yeah. we're in a very specific era of friendship transformation. Yeah. At I the think moment. about my I think about my mom and her friendships all the time. Like because if you think about it, like our generation is so different in that because the the recession sort of scrambled so many of our life events or they delayed them. I think lots of people, obviously, of our generation get married later. You excluded, obviously. <laughs> get married later, have children later. Always been a yeah, Very. <laughs> they get married later, they have children later. And so the, the, the wedge for spending a load of time with your friends is longer and bigger. And so mm. having multiple dinners a month with the same friend in your 20s is like a thing that happens. And so we have, and this is, I think, why so much millennial literature focuses on the politics of friendships rather than the politics of romance because it's um it's a much more tangled intense thing that goes on for much longer in life than it perhaps did in previous generations i think like think of my mom's generation when you she when she was my age she was having me her fourth baby you know and the people who would have been her friends would have been like people on the road who were also raising their kids and there would have been an understanding that they were the their friendships were kind of because of the children kind of thing. And I don't think she really maintained those friendships that much over the years because they weren't really founded in connection or or great laughs. So it was natural just like, though to be so founded natural. in circumstance. Yeah. We need friends in circumstance. It's like work friends as well. Yeah, yeah, totally. And uh, I, yeah, I think our relationships to friends were therefore different. But then I think I see her now and she's like, in her 60s and about three years ago she met this group of women through COVID who did dog walk their dogs together and now she feels about them the way I felt about my best friends when I was 25 when I had all the time in the world and I had so much time for connection and love and dinners and friendship she is like that with them and I find that fascinating and also exciting that's something exciting for us to look forward to to know that we're going because that's what I tell myself a lot as well now I'm going to get time back. Yes. It's not always going to be intense as what it is in yeah. our 30s. Yeah. Like we're going to hit those career goals or the children are going to grow up or whatever. Yeah. And then yeah, we're totally. going to get time back. And it's exciting to think of new friends at 50 Isn't and that, not everything yeah. being the same now. Yeah. Yeah. I found when I, I just, uh, I was in Melbourne last week and uh, I made loads of new friends and they, they were all seemed to be Gen Xers as well. Just the people I was like running into and, and having fun with. My favorite generation. The, the best, <laughs> the forgotten generation and the best generation. And like I was just, it's so fun being out with women whose children are grown and they're just ready to fucking have fun again. And like, it was just, it was just some laugh because it's such a laugh. They're so interested. They're so alive, but they have like, the sort of like Cold War vet sort of like stare of being like, you don't know where I've been. You don't know what I've done. You don't know the sort of like the late night calls I've had from my teenage children of the ER rooms I had to visit kind of thing. You know, they've just had all this life and I just want to like eat their life. You and, know? Was, and nothing 
stupid is going to bother them. That's what exactly. I love about those kind of women. They yeah. are not going to blow up or get cranky or get derailed yeah, yeah. by things that don't matter. Yes, exactly. Exactly. They've been in the ER room too they've, much. Yeah, they've been in the ER. <laughs> exactly. Totally. I noticed, like, because friendship was obviously a huge appeal of Sentimental in the City. One, you were dealing with, like, a seminal text of our generation, obviously, Sex in the City. The friendship between you and Dolly is obviously a huge part of the appeal of that yeah. podcast as well. Well, I think it's obvious that it's part of the appeal. Oh, yeah. I noticed in the Rachel incident yeah. direct quotes yeah. from that yeah. podcast in the book. Were those Easter eggs? Are you Taylor Swift? <laughs> Taylor Swift of writing books. How did like how did that happen and why did you leave it's them in there so, so verbatim? It's funny, isn't it? No, it's you know what's funny about that is because um, I started writing The Rachel Incident probably about three or four weeks before I started writing um before we started recording Sentimental in the City and The Rachel Incident was written in a really short period of time which is so unusual it was written in about 11 weeks and so it was this really concentrated time of like anything that was around me it was being sucked up I was just so porous but like things like there's a there's sort of a catchphrase I guess you could call it on the on Sentimental City called that's very a play <laughs> In like the first three chapters or yeah, something yeah, it's in yeah. the book and, and there's a little squeal of recognition from yeah. the OG fans. Very yeah, yeah. a play. Very a play. And uh, for anyone who doesn't know, very a play is like something we refer to uh, with the, the McDougal sort of storyline in Sex and City, which is Trey's first husband and about how how theatrical and how separate to the rest of the show they feel and how it feels funny. like... Funny. Funny, exactly. <laughs> and how it feels like something that you would seen in like a black box theatre every time the McDoodles are on stage. And now whenever anything feels a bit stagey or a bit overwrought, it's beca- it just became like, oh, very a play. <laughs> this is very a play. Um, and so that was like a catchphrase that me and Dolly had going in our friendship for about a year before we even started doing Sentimental in the City. And so when I, and you often, I often write in private jokes into books because like, as you know yourself, writing a book is such a lonely experience that you need to put in stuff that sort of makes you laugh or like will make your friend laugh when they read it kind of thing. And you don't think that your private joke is going to become like an international thing. <laughs> and so it's so funny that like, so I, when I put it in, I had no idea that Oh, like, so you hadn't said it on the podcast no, yet. Oh, no. that's so funny. Yeah, yeah. And then when it came to copy editing, I was like, well, leave it in. Why not? You know, <laughs> but there's a few different bits in there and there's bits that like, that, uh, that James says yeah. were Dolly quotes, I noticed. Yeah, yeah. And there's also a bit where um, that I got off Dolly that Carrie, who is Rachel's boyfriend, he says to her at some point, she says to him that she, like, oh, without spoiling it or whatever, she says that, like, you know, I, I didn't want to tell you, I didn't want to bother you, I wanted you to love me for being kind of fun. And she and he's, like, disgusted by this. And he's like, when you love someone, you love the whole person. It doesn't matter when they're being difficult. It doesn't matter when there's a problem. And that's, like, a direct, like, a thesis of Dolly's life. And it was fun to put it in the mouth of, like, a sexy boy. <laughs> a beautiful little nod to her. Yeah. Your co-host, by the way, who isn't in the studio today, there's, there's a picture behind you. She's exactly how I imagine Rachel. Oh, really? Yeah, really? Yeah. Rachel looks like her. Yeah, so Rachel yeah. looks essentially like a model. Like a model, yeah. No, <laughs> she's tall as well like yeah, you. Yeah, she <laughs> looks like a tall girl. She's yeah. very, well, you can see her next week. Yeah, she's very tall. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's just the long hair and she looks very tall. And like I'm like, oh, it's so weird talking about the book. And she's I was like, yeah, that's, that's always how she looks in my head. <laughs> Well, the listeners now when they read the Rachel incident are going to yeah. have Brie are going to have Brie as the stand-in instead of you because I didn't have exactly you actually because there were a few differences but there are certain points where yeah. I am just like thinking in your voice while reading it. 
you've got this is your sixth novel. Yeah. So like incredible body of work for someone so young. We're all still young. We're babies. <laughs> So I wanted to ask you about a previous book as well, because Scenes of a Graphic Nature oh, yeah. was your second novel. And I just think it is such a, like, thrilling, sexy, fraught, fun book. And I wanted, and I read it and loved it. The plot is a bit complicated, I think, to yeah. explain but, but I think that's here. one of the reasons how, why it didn't do very well, because well, the plot is ask, very complicated. So yeah. I wanted to ask you how you feel about, what's your relationship like with that specific book? Because I thought it was such a unique, Fate. Oh, thank you so much. I love that you loved it. And we were out last night for drinks and you were talking about how much you liked it. And I wanted to cry because it was <laughs> it's so rare that people talk to me about that book because it was this thing where it like I so I wrote my first book, Promising Young Women. And I and, and I did the classic thing of like getting up at 6 a.m. before my day job or whatever and writing my thousand words. And then after a while, there was a book and it happened. And then I sold that book to a publisher and I got I think I it was like a 15 grand advance or something like that and uh, I was like okay that's like you know you get five on signing and uh, like, okay that's enough money for me to quit my job and have a cushion and so I'm going to make a go of being a freelance person and that was 2017 then I was trying to sort of write my second book while also trying to sort of make a living and doing various copywriting jobs and journalism jobs and you know the very threadbare existence that was uh, maintained for a while. And as a result, I had to keep like, I had this big vision for this big book about this um, second generation Irish person who goes back to her father's hometown and sort of discovers this sort of mystery that's very much linked to how her father spoke about Ireland and how he raised her. And it's sort of like unpicking family trauma as you're unpicking a sort of a local crime story kind of thing. And... uh, it was my, I was so passionate about it, but I also didn't have the time to dedicate to it. So I just kept picking it up and putting it down. And because of that, it just kept taking longer and it kept getting longer. And I think as well, the longer you sit with a book, this is a real mistake and I don't want any other authors to make it. The longer you sit with a book, the more it has to do for you. So it's like, for example, I wrote Rachel in 11 Weeks. And I didn't have any consensus of like, well, this has to be the book in which people take me seriously. This has to be the book in which my politics are correct. This is my book, whatever. This is the book book that gets me a TV deal. A TV deal or nominated for awards or whatever. What the only ambition that was going behind that book was that I needed a book. I had a book due (laughs) And, and I needed to write one. And there was a great freedom that came with that or something because it felt like a heist. It felt like, right, well, like... Let's get the boys together for one last job and see if we can do this, you know. And there was something very that just I felt like a bird on the wind when I was writing Rachel. And then but with scenes, it was like I was like, okay, now it's it's year two and I'm still working on this. It's like almost year three and I'm still working on this. I felt like it got more. I'm still really proud of it, but it felt like it got heavier with my anxiety. And I feel like. Which is good because I think the main character of that book is a highly anxious person. So it feels heavier, maybe. And the the plot is very complicated. The politics are very complicated. The people who loved it really loved it. But also it, come, it came out then after all this waiting and work and anxiety came out in the middle of the pandemic when like it was like literally in a six week slot where in England anyway, where the bookshops were open and then they were about to close again. It was like between lockdown one and lockdown two. And so it just sort of vanished. And uh, obviously lots of books came out in that time and they were all fighting for a very small amount of bookshop space. And 
what's nice about it is that there's a thing that happens to a book when it reaches the public where it becomes oxidized by their opinion. Like my opinion, ah. you know, that's it. It's like, it's like my opinion of Rachel will always be that it, now. Like it was a beautiful time to write, but because so many people have read it already, it's only been out like five months, but like so many people have read it and given it good reviews. It's sort of become theirs more than it's mine anymore, which is, so, which is exactly what you want as a writer. But sometimes it's like, if if you use the very played out metaphor of like your books are your babies, like you've got your your baby that's a pleasure to teach and everyone loves and is like charismatic and is on the sport on all the sports teams and that's the Rachel incident, and then you've got your little awkward baby who's like small for his age and he's like always <laughs> by your skirt and sort of tugging and like he hides behind you kind of thing, and there's something about that you have a degree of tenderness for that baby that maybe you don't have for the other ones just because they need you more and that's how scenes of graphic nature feels you know so what's the mistake that you don't want other authors to make there when you say you, if you're going to put a lot into it you need to get a lot out that's it do not expect a book to give you anything other than the experience of writing it mm. i think if you if you go in charged with expectations of the kind of writer you're going to be perceived as by the end of it the kind of awards you're going to get the kind of attention you're going to get that it spoiled the broth in a in a really dangerous way. I think you just have to do it to do it, which is really hard to do because it's, it's a long process. And of course, you're going to fantasize throughout, but you can't put expectations on that book. It kills it. I have so many friends who like are writing their novels and they're like, they, they have all these ideas of like, no, when, you know, this is my going to be my first novel. So it's like, it's got to, it's got to say something. And it's like, it, it's all it has to say is, is what's written down. Like, it doesn't have to say anything about you. I think so much. I think that, is particularly a thing for debut books. You think it's going to change your life. Yeah. I think every author thinks that about yeah. their debut book. It's going to ch- change their life, you know, to different degrees and extremes. And yeah. then you have to learn that lesson. And You do. And like, and yeah, and I think it's great as well of like, uh, have you written two books? Yes. And I also had a book come out in 2021 in uh, lockdown. So we'd opened yeah. up again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Planned my book launch and everything. And we thought, you know, the vaccines were coming. We thought that we were yeah. out of the woods and then we went into a very long lockdown. Like, I think it was the week it came out. Yeah, so, yeah. It's it's tough. How did you feel about that? I love that book still. Yeah. I'm so proud of that book. But I feel, oh, I do feel like it could have been, I might have missed out on something. Yeah. That's how I, like, yeah. Trivial Grievances is that book. And I feel like that book could have done more for me than what it did. Yeah, yeah. But also I still might be getting a TV de- deal out of it. I know. So it's fine. But it's funny what – but that comes yeah. around so much later. Like you think it's all done and then it pops I know. up again. That happens for you as well. Yeah, like, totally. Like I just sold the rights for my to my first novel and that came out in 2018. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, like, so it comes – and you just yeah. got to keep – Things – books, they stay in the consciousness, you Yeah, know? and also I think I'm good at – and it seems like you're the same type of person – head down onto the next project. Yeah, like, yeah, totally. The, the next totally. thing that you're going to do. I was – I'm really interested in the mechanics of how you wrote that book in 11 weeks. Yeah. So did you – what was the strategy there? Did you have a word limit a day? I know it was in lockdown, yeah. so there weren't that many distractions. But yeah, yeah. What are, what is the actual mechanics of writing more like seventy thousand words in eleven weeks? Um, and coming up with a story as well yeah. during that—that's actually a really short amount of time, even to come up with the story of your book. So the reason it had to be on eleven weeks is because I was given three years to write my next book, but um, and I, I had this whole—I had this whole plan 
it was it was for a book called Claire and it was supposed to be this sort of like Black Mirror-esque sort of feminist parody kind of thing about like a feminist workplace gone awry. And um, my publishers were very excited about it. I had sent them the first 20,000 words and the longer it limped on, it just kind of like just wasn't working on a number of levels, which I've talked about elsewhere and I won't get all the way into here. But then I, when I realized that I was just like, I can't finish this and I can't promote it either. Because if you hate something, if you've written many books, several books as an author and you can't make it to the end of a first draft on a next book, then it's not it's not the same as being a debut and not being able to finish a draft. That's a different animal, I think. Mm-hmm. If you if you're a, a career author and a draft just isn't working, you really have to go back to scratch and be like, unmake it. Either go back to the very very beginning and find out what's not working, like taking apart a car or something, or you just have to like scrap it, scrap it for metal, you know. And well, I chose the scrapping it because I, it was making me so miserable. And I had a note in my phone, my notes app, that was inspired by a conversation I'd had on Twitter with somebody whose name on Twitter I forget, which is very annoying. Oh no. I know, it's been lost to time. But they were talking about the Irish campus novel. They're talking about circle of friends and normal people and about how like, the, the joke was like, oh, these campus novels are always in Dublin. Why is never nobody ever like written a book about the University of Limerick or something, you know? <laughs> and then I started thinking about what a University College Cork campus novel would look like. And then I realized I was like, well, if I were to write a UCC novel, the campus like the campus novel wouldn't even take place on campus because I spend so much of my time off campus at my part time job. And then it just kind of flourished from there. And I realized that like, that, that time I had spent with Ryan, my best friend, he like changed my life and my brain in such a significant way. And I wanted to sort of like write about it and honor it. And then the plot was just this like delirious soap opera that re- that for some reason it, it just seems to make sense around this cozy little Irish world. I think that's why Maeve Vinci was so good. Like Maeve Vinci wrote books that were like so cozy and so comforting, but like you'd have these extreme events. Oh, just derange things happening. Which is very much happening. the Rachel incident as totally. well. But because they're written in this sort of homey, cozy patter, you just buy it for some oh, reason. Totally. Yeah, and that's exactly what it is. Rachel Linson is very much an homage to a Maeve Vinci book. And so, yeah, I don't know. It just it just flowed. And the mechanics of it were that, like, I was just doing very little else. And also, I think what's what was different about Rachel and why I'm also at peace with maybe it doesn't, it's a success that doesn't repeat itself, is that um, when you are, like, when there's no new events happening, which is so the experience with lockdown, you're stuck with your memories in a different way. And I think lots of people had lots of people reached out to old friends and old boyfriends. I remembered things you that know? I just had not thought about in years. I remember that yeah. time of things coming back vividly, even just vividly. random nothing memories. Yeah. Like remembering a shop that I used to go to when I was totally, 23. Totally. I remembered a girl I was like, I was friends with when I was 14. And suddenly I was like, she had a sister who was younger than us. I wonder where that sister is now. And then doing a deep dive on that sister. <laughs> She's a pianist in New York. <laughs> Amazing. I know, good So you got her. an interesting story at the end of it. Right, right. And it was so satisfying, like following the threads. Um, but, th- but that's what Rachel felt like. Rachel felt, re- writing Rachel felt like Googling someone you used to know. 15 years ago and like going on a trail kind of of that that's the the same sort of adrenaline spike of when you're on a rabbit hole of somebody you used to know did you write every single day of the 11 weeks or did you have to take like a Sunday off or whatever um 
I don't, I don't, it's all such a blur now. I think I was averaging about, generally my average would be a thousand, maybe 1500 words a day. Mm -hmm. And I think in sessions, and this one I was probably averaging three or 4,000. Wow. So I was still taking weekends, I'm pretty sure. I would have done, but. uh, That's incredible to do 4,000 in one day on a novel. The brain drain of that is amazing. It's insane. Yeah. And like the odd time now I can do it, but only if I'm on deadline. And you, you get that sort of like buzz of adrenaline on deadline. And sometimes you can do a 5,000 word day, but like, yeah, there are very, it's very, it's a lot of words, you know? Oh, I'm so happy that your podcast yeah. and that book brought you to our shores where you got to realise you're an Australian sensation. My favourite country in the world. You'll come back so much that you will become our Caroline. I want to be our Caroline <laughs> so much. Our Caroline in Australia. Yeah. I love that. Thank you so much for joining me Thank today, you, Caroline. Brady. And if I may add, I don't know the most about Australia, but I do feel the most about Australia. <laughs> You've been listening to Cool Story with Brie and Bridie, a special author episode. This episode was produced by Sam Devonport and recorded on Gadigal land in Sydney. You can find other episodes wherever you get your podcasts and please rate us and leave a review. We love reading them. And you can also find us on Instagram at Cool Story Brie Bridie. Want to hear a cool story? Find us wherever you get your podcasts.